Let's pause to pray once more. Our God, it is an astounding fact to consider that you, the creator of the Pleiades and Orion, you, the Lord who is sustaining right now the depths of the oceans, the creatures that live there, you who are superintending the core of the earth that we stand on, you, our creator and our maker, have determined to be with us to be with us who have rebelled against you, have performed our mutiny against you, you have determined to save us, to bring us back into right right relationship with you, to be with us, your children, for the rest of eternity. Lord, it is a marvel. It is an astonishing reality, an astonishing fact. And now as we go to your word again, to consider together your presence your workings in the temple. We pray your presence, your anointing, your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Way back in the time of Moses, God was already talking about the temple that centuries later, after the time of Moses, that Solomon would end up building. In Deuteronomy 12, before Israel ever conquered the promised land, God was already talking about a place in the promised land where he would dwell. A place of his choosing, where his presence would be, where the Israelites would bring their sacrifices and bring their gifts to him the temple. Unlike the wilderness tabernacle, which had been God's mobile home, which was packed up, transported to new locations every time the wilderness generation had been on the move as they journeyed toward the promised land, the temple would be a permanent structure in a specific location within the promised land. The temple would be patterned after the tabernacle in large measure, but instead of so much foldable cloth material that featured in the tabernacle, the temple would be made up of sturdy, fixed materials that weren't intended to be taken down and packed up. Where the tabernacle had been a symbol of the wandering people of God, venturing toward the promised land, now the temple fixed in a single location would be the symbol of a people established in the promised land. And God had decided on the human figures who would and who would not play roles in the construction of the temple. David, for his part, had been the final figure in a long string of people who had done the hard work of taking over the land. In Tremper Longman's words, David was the conquest completer. The conquest completer. He defeated the last of the inhabitants of the land, most notably the Philistines, close quote. 
David had blood on his hands in his role as the conquest completer. And God said to David in 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8, You, David, shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. So even though, according to 1 Chronicles 28, David had drawn up extensive plans for the temple, his time in the sun, though it had been so crucial in so many ways in the history of redemption, David's time in the sun would not include the building of the temple in Jerusalem. But now here were the people, they were finally enjoying rest from their enemies inside the promised land, a rest that in large measure had been secured by David. Now his son Solomon would be the one who would build a temple to the Lord and for the Lord in Jerusalem. Interestingly enough, Solomon is called man of rest in 1 Chronicles 22 verse 9 man of rest, and the name Solomon, of course, is formed from the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. God had given rest to his people inside the promised land, way back in that same 12th chapter of Deuteronomy that we mentioned a little earlier, in verse 10 of that chapter, God had issued a promise to his people that one day he would give them rest in the land, rest from their enemies all around. And it's very significant that when the temple is finally built, centuries after that promise of Deuteronomy 12 had been made, as Solomon, the man of rest, is praying at the dedication of the temple, he hearkens back to that promise from Deuteronomy 12:10, Solomon prays, 1 Kings 8:56, he prays, "Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise which he spoke by Moses his servant." God had come through. God had given rest to his people just as he had promised he would do. And so now Solomon, the man of rest, builds the temple, the place of God's presence in Jerusalem, which significantly also is called God's resting place in Psalm 132 verse 14. Now, Solomon's temple was, as we said, essentially patterned after the wilderness tabernacle with the same basic layout, the same furnishings as the tabernacle had had. So in Solomon's temple, you still had two basic rooms, the holy place with the table of the bread of the presence and the lampstands and the altar of incense. And then you had the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, with the cherubim built on top of the ark cover. God dwelling there, and the high priest only allowed to enter the most holy place once per year, 
But everything we need to understand, everything in Solomon's temple was bigger and grander than it had been in the tabernacle. So just a few examples here. Instead of the 15 foot cubed, most holy place in the tabernacle, 15 foot cubed, the most holy place in the temple where the Ark of the Covenant was, was a 30 foot cube twice as big as the tabernacles had been. And instead of the dirt floor of the wilderness tabernacle, the floor of Solomon's temple was constructed and it was overlaid with gold. And instead of the acacia wood that had featured in the construction of the tabernacle, Solomon's temple featured more expensive cypress and cedar wood. As you came into Solomon's temple, at the entrance were these two magnificent bronze pillars, each of them standing 27 feet high, plus a seven and a half foot capital that stood on the top of each of the two pillars, decorated with floral motifs like the Garden of Eden. Each of these two huge pillars had a circumference of 18 feet and each of the pillars had a name. The pillar on the south was named Yaquin, and the pillar on the north was named Boaz. In some way, these two pillars represented the strength of Yahweh, God of Israel, the mighty presence of Yahweh with his people. The tabernacle in the wilderness had not included such pillars, this was a new innovation in Solomon's temple. And in the courtyard of Solomon's temple, just to mention one other feature here, there was a gigantic basin made of bronze, cast bronze. This bronze basin was 15 feet in diameter, it was seven and a half feet deep, and it held about 38,000 liters of water. It sat on top of 12 crafted oxen, three oxen facing in each direction, north, south, east, and west. And significantly, this huge basin is referred to in scripture as the sea, S-E-A. For example, where the making of this basin is being described, 1 Kings 7, Verse 23, the scripture says, then he made the sea of cast metal. And down in verse 44, the 12 bronze oxen are positioned underneath the sea. It's significant that this bronze water basin is called the sea. Now, we are living in the 21st century and for us 21st century types, it may be difficult to understand, but the sea in the thinking of these ancient people was connected with chaos, was connected with danger. The God of Israel, whose presence dwelt in the temple, is the one who controls the chaos and the danger of the sea. In Job chapter 38, he's described as shutting in the sea with doors and prescribing limits for the sea. 
In Jeremiah 5.22, God likewise manages and controls the chaos waters. The bronze basin, the sea, which was in the southeast corner of the temple courtyard, the sea is positioned right there in the vicinity of God's presence. Yes? Right in close proximity to God's earthly throne. The idea, friends, is that the sea is controlled. God controls the chaos. Amen? The water in the basin is contained, it is calm, it is placid. The God who resided in Solomon's temple, our God, is the one who controls chaos and who orders existence and who defeats dangers and who establishes his people. We serve a great and mighty God. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, you might remember how we looked at the the part of Exodus chapter 40, where the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Remember that? And how Moses could not enter the tabernacle right at the end of Exodus. No, nobody could enter the tabernacle. If Moses can't enter the tabernacle, nobody can. They couldn't do it without following God's procedures for sacrifice and priesthood, which are the concern of the first several chapters of Leviticus. Something similar happens as Solomon's temple is completed. So just as the priests, the temple's done, the priests now are just coming out of the most holy place, having just carefully positioned the Ark of the Covenant there for the first time. And 1 Kings 8, 10 and 11 tell us that at that point, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh, the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord of Yahweh filled the house of the Lord. So God's overwhelming nuclear reactor core style presence comes. What a moment. Solomon must have been thrilled. All his time, all his energy, his efforts, all the expense. And now Yahweh comes to fill the house with his presence. This is worth celebrating. And indeed, at the end of 1 Kings 8, after the temple is dedicated, the Lord dwells there, sacrifices have been offered. It says that the people were all joyful and glad of heart. What a party, what a great time of celebration. But what we need to see as we read the scriptures carefully is there are ominous notes attached to the story of Solomon's temple. The raucous party celebrating his new temple has just wrapped up, 1 Kings 8, when God appeared to Solomon, 1 Kings 9, 
And God said several things to Solomon in that moment, but very significantly, one of the things that God said was this, in 1 Kings 9, verses six through eight. Now again, let's just pause here, let's get the picture. Solomon still has a smile on his face. He still has joy in his heart over the completed temple. And God comes along and says to him in that moment of rejoicing, he says this, if Solomon, you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will do what? I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples and this house, newly constructed house that you're all celebrating, this house will become a heap of ruins. Talk about a cold splash of water on Solomon's face in this moment. This warning from God, this caution that is issued to Solomon by God, right on the heels of the temple's construction, its completion, it becomes particularly poignant and particularly ominous when we consider this, that only two chapters after this warning, Solomon's heart is, be, is described there as being turned toward gods other than Yahweh of Israel. Solomon's heart pined after the Sidonian goddess Ashtoreth, and the abominable Ammonite god Milcom, and Solomon built high places for the Moabite god Shemosh, and the Ammonite god Molech, and he made sacrifices to foreign gods. It turned out, my friends, that Solomon's heart was not centered and not resolute on Yahweh. Solomon was a person who served a smorgasbord of gods. In fact, <clears throat> there were red flags all along with Solomon and Solomon's temple project. It's probably worth noting that back in 2 Samuel 7, when Solomon's dad, David, came up with the idea to build God a house God's word then came to David saying effectively this, well, David, I never asked for a house. The tabernacle tent was just fine. God downplayed the importance of human beings building him some extravagant house. But God upplayed, God stressed the importance of obedience to his word. Yes, God mercifully came to dwell in the house that Solomon built. But just as we saw in 1 Kings 9, God valued obedience more than God valued opulent golden buildings. 
Obedience to his word was to take precedence over the construction and the maintenance of any building, however grand the building and however magnificent the building is. I think maybe the author of 1 Kings, watch this, turn to 1 Kings 6, if you have a Bible, I think he gives us a window perhaps into Solomon's heart in this, watch this. So in 1 Kings 6, we have the report of the temple being built, God's house is being built. And the construction project is humming along all throughout that chapter, all throughout 1 Kings 6, everything is going great. And then suddenly, we get the first 12 verses of chapter seven, which abruptly, almost awkwardly, interrupt the construction report of the temple to tell us about the building of Solomon's personal palace and how grand and how fine his own personal crib was. Those verses tell us that Solomon's personal palace took almost twice as long to build as God's temple did. Those verses detail all the cedar beams and all the high-grade stone that Solomon put in his palace. And then what we notice is that right after those 12 verses that interrupt, we go back to regular programming. The rest of chapter seven resumes details concerning the temple's construction. There is a stress, friends, a stress placed in that section of scripture on Solomon's penchant for grandeur and for opulence, not only for the temple, but also for his own personal dwelling. And note this well, note this well, there is a deafening silence in that whole section concerning God's approval of it all. In contrast to the tabernacle narrative in the book of Exodus, where we had God directing, God speaking, God involved in every step of the construction, the temple construction narrative is characterized by an awful lot of Solomon did this, Solomon did that, and God is more or less sidelined. As Daniel Hayes has pointed out, he says the only word from God in 1 Kings 6 comes as an interruptive warning emphasizing obedience to the law, verses 12 and 13. God valued obedience to his word over extravagant buildings. And more red flags where the tabernacle narrative had people giving abundantly, the congregation of Israel, giving joyfully, worshipfully to the construction project, the temple narrative has Solomon doing what? Conscripting a forced labor pool to do the construction. And whereas in the tabernacle narrative, God was the one who chose skilled craftsmen, endowed those craftsmen, empowered those craftsmen with his spirit to do the work. In the temple story, 
Solomon goes out and chooses a guy from Tyre to do important work in the temple construction. Solomon chooses a non-Israelite craftsman who is never said to be empowered by God's spirit. In all of this, there are questions around Solomon. The distinct impression is given that as Solomon built the temple, his heart was more focused on what could be done with bricks and mortar, what could be done with gold and silver and bronze, than it really was on obeying the Lord. And the verdict on the temple builder Solomon is given very clearly in 1 Kings 11.6. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. And starting there with Solomon, my friends, there is a long history of kings in Israel and commoners in Israel with those kings who disobey the Lord as their hearts are turned toward idols. And perhaps one of the very lowest points comes later on during the reign of Solomon's descendant Manasseh. Among other evil accomplishments, Manasseh, get this, he built altars to the starry hosts inside the Jerusalem temple. Well, eventually, God's long patience ran out. All the warnings to Israel that he'd issued through his prophets went unheeded. And God exiled the people of Israel first in the north, and then he exiled Judah in the south out of their land, away from the temple, and very importantly, my friends, the exile is described, listen, the exile is described in terms of being removed from or banished from the presence of God. So in 2 Kings 17, verse 18 through 23, the northern kingdom, Israel, is described three times there as being removed from God's presence, cast out from God's presence. So the exile of the northern kingdom out of the land to Assyria, 722 BC, is described in terms, very importantly, of being sent away from God's presence. Adam and Eve, sent away from the first temple, the creational sanctuary. And now Israel, the new Adam, is undergoing the same thing. Similarly, for the southern kingdom, for Judah, when their exile to Babylon comes in 586 BC, God says, and here I'm quoting the NIV version of 2 Kings 23, 27. He says, I will remove Judah also from my presence as I removed Israel and I will reject Jerusalem the city I chose, and this temple about which I said, there shall, be, there shall my name be. And it happens, it happens. 
One chapter later, in 2 Kings 24, verse 20, we read this. In the end, he thrust them from his presence. Thrust them from his presence. Ezekiel 11 describes the tragedy, the tragedy of God's presence leaving the Jerusalem temple and the temple is ransacked, the temple is looted, the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. In the end, he thrust them from his presence. Again, friends, the exile of the northern kingdom and also the exile of the southern kingdom are both described in terms of losing the presence of God, being sent away from the presence of God, like Adam in the garden, who had been cast outside the garden because of his sin, away from the presence of God, so were Israel and Judah cast out of the promised land, away from the place where Solomon's temple had stood for almost 400 years. We know that just over 70 years later, once the people returned from exile, they were encouraged the returnees, by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to rebuild a temple. And there was indeed a second temple that was built. But the second temple paled in comparison to the temple that Solomon had built. The second temple turned out to be a much scaled down version of Solomon's temple. And very significantly, we need to understand, nowhere in the construction of the second temple is there any mention of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark wasn't in the second temple. And likewise, nowhere in the account of the second temple is there any report of God's glory coming to fill the place as it had done in Solomon's temple in the tabernacle before it and in the Garden of Eden before that. There is no divine infilling. And by the time we come to the end of the Old Testament history, God's glory is not in the temple, and there is also no king in the line of David on the throne of Israel. No presence and no Davidic king. 400 years then pass, And we find the Roman-appointed Herod the Great busily reconstructing the second temple in Jerusalem. A baby is born in Bethlehem named Jesus. And in Luke's gospel, immediately after the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, we get two back-to-back temple stories, interestingly enough. The first temple story has the baby Jesus in the temple being presented to the Lord with two godly elderly people, Simeon and Anna, prophesying over Jesus, recognizing that this baby is God's salvation. <laughs> the baby is God with us. Amen? Right there in Herod's temple. 
And then the second of the back-to-back temple stories is the story of the 12-year-old Jesus, just a boy, having a rousing theological discussion in the temple with the temple teachers. Verse 47 tells us that people listening there were amazed at the understanding of the boy Jesus and the answers that he was able to provide. In verse 49, the boy Jesus calls the temple, very significantly, he calls the temple his father's house. So as a boy, Jesus recognizes the temple as the house, the dwelling place of his heavenly father's presence even as his own presence and his own wisdom in the temple is amazing to everybody. When Jesus grows into a man, he says some things concerning the temple that are nothing short of arresting and astonishing. So at one point, in reference to himself, in reference to himself, Jesus is speaking, in reference to himself, and he says to some some Jewish Pharisees, I tell you, something greater than the temple, greater than the temple, is here. Jesus identifies himself as greater than the Jerusalem temple. But it's in John chapter two that we have a particularly stunning development. Jesus has just overturned the tables of the money changers in the temple, and now some Jewish folk come along and they say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they say to Jesus, as the NIV has it, they say, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And Jesus replies, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course, his Jewish listeners, as they're leaning in, they automatically assume here that Jesus is referring to Herod's temple, where they're standing, that he's referring to the physical Jerusalem temple. And so they reply to Jesus, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days? I mean, all this mortar, all this stone, all this lumber, this crafted metal, this whole vast temple complex, Jesus, you will rebuild it in three days after its destruction when it's taken entire crews of workers almost five decades to build? You're dreaming. But then in verse 21, John lets us in on the secret of what Jesus has just said to these people. But Jesus had been speaking about the temple of his body. The temple of his body. 
destroy this flesh and bone temple that is me, says Jesus, and in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus had not been referring to Herod's temple. He'd been referring to himself and profoundly, my friends, he identifies himself in John 2 as the temple. Why? Because in the plan of Almighty God, the plan that went from Eden, where his laser-beamed presence had been, to the tabernacle where his laser-beamed presence had been, then to the Jerusalem temple. Now, listen, Jesus is the location of God's blazing presence on earth. Amen? Jesus was now the most holy place of God filled with God's glory. Destroy this temple, Jesus says. In other words, crucify me on the cross and bury me in a tomb. And in three days, this temple, this new location of God's presence on earth will be raised. My friends, where is the meeting place between God and human beings? It's Jesus. Where is the place of God's presence, God's light, God's sustenance, God's glory, God's might, God's wisdom, God's holiness, God's forgiving love? Where is it? It's Jesus. Something greater than any stone temple is here and it's Jesus Christ. The incarnate Christ is, get this, the mobile, glorious presence of God with his people on earth. God chose the place for his dwelling, for his glory, after it had departed from Solomon's temple so many centuries before, and that place is in the flesh and blood person Jesus of Nazareth. When this temple named Jesus Christ is crucified on the cross, what happens? The old temple veil is torn in two. Why? Because the old system has passed. The new covenant is here. Jesus is the place of God's dwelling. He is the sacrificial forgiveness of God by his blood. Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron ever was. Jesus is the one whose blood sacrifice covers the sins of Jews and Gentiles the world over for all time. Jesus is God's temple. Why is there no physical stone or wooden temple in the new Jerusalem that is still to come? Because as John says so clearly in Revelation 21, 22, listen, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now this sermon is just about done. <clears throat> and some of you may be saying, well, this is all the beautiful 
story of God, the, the story of his temple pastor, but what do I do with it all? What's the application for my Monday and for my Tuesday? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> if we are believers in Jesus Christ, oh, listen, friends, if we are believers in Jesus Christ, saved by his grace, we are in union with him, yes? We are in Christ, who is the temple of God. And by virtue of that wonderful union that we have with the risen Jesus Christ, by virtue of being the body of Christ, we are the temple of God. We are the house of God. The Snowden Church building is most definitely not the house of God, but the believing people in it are the house of God. And that is the staggering and glorious truth of the New Testament. God has decided to dwell by his Holy Spirit in his very imperfect church. He's purposed to dwell down in our dust, down in our muck, down in our confusion with us and in us as we are in union with his son, Jesus. And if you don't believe me, believe the apostle Paul. Listen to the apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3.16. Can't be put any plainer. Paul is speaking to the church body here, okay? He's speaking to the plurality of persons in the church, and he says, do you all, it's plural in Greek, do you all not know that you all are God's temple? Wow. And that God's spirit dwells in you. Wow, wow, I'll say it again, say it with me, wow. <laughs> this is astonishing. Church, we the people of the church who have been made alive in Jesus Christ, who is the temple of God, we are the temple of God by virtue of our union with him. And so here's the application. Will we desecrate the temple with disunity? Will we desecrate the temple with gossip? With a double-mindedness that pays lip service to God while our hearts are far from him? We are a kingdom of priests who in the fear of God keep his temple spick and span and obey his commands in the power that he supplies. We are the living stones, says the apostle Peter, who are being built up as a spiritual house being built up as God's temple, as the place on earth where God 
dwells in the midst of a very dark world. May God search our hearts this morning. And in His grace, may He expose to us any disunity that we are causing. Any idolatry that we are loving. And as we repent and find His forgiveness, may His glory fill the temple. God is with us. We are His temple because we are in union with the once destroyed but now raised chief cornerstone named Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we cannot come under your authoritative word and leave unchanged. I pray, Lord, that for each and every one of us that you would continue by your word and spirit to divide marrow and do your surgery redemptively for your glory, for the benefit of our neighbor and the church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.